This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Boat Trader is America's largest boating marketplace with over 100,000 boats to choose from. We offer simple, comprehensive solutions for those looking to sell, find, and finance new or used boats. Visit BoatTrader.com to get started. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Listen to the new Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people, like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on Patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on Patreon.com and join us. The Copper Pig Brewery in Lancaster, New Hampshire, is brewing traditional and innovative high-quality beers, as well as serving a large menu of creative comfort foods, appealing to all walks of life, with daily specials sourcing many ingredients locally. Charitable involvement and support of their community is the cornerstone to the Copper Pig Brewery's mission. Voted number one in New Hampshire by WMUR Viewer's Choice two years in a row, 2018 and 2019. Please join me at the Copper Pig. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference.
please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experience of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Episode 51, Brian Albert, Maryland. And this is like a a three-parter that I did, John. Uh, When I was down in Maryland, so about a year ago, I was invited down to a fundraiser for their Operation Game Thief, which is Maryland Wildlife Crime Stoppers. And I want everybody to notice today, John's on a new mic and the clarity and everything. This is, this is great. I'm just, I'm, I'm loving this. Uh, we, we keep increasing little by little our quality in our podcast and uh, things are going good. We added video so you can go on Patreon and see us now doing these intros and doing podcasts. And I think that's an awesome thing. Upped our, our audios a little. And every time we, we, we see a problem, we try to address it on this podcast. So, and I'm sure there'll be many more things to come, John, but you're, you are sounding awesome today. <laughs> Um, yeah, Wayne, Santa, Santa was generous this Christmas, and uh, uh, this this microphone's working great, and and working with as you know different backgrounds. And hey, man, the world is digital for everything, and the podcast world that we're in has really benefited from you know this remote communication, visual audio, and and combinations we're doing now through COVID. So yeah, yeah, this is cool, and we got we got more step ups to come, don't we? Yes, absolutely. And we definitely stepped up when it came to COVID too by doing different things. Uh, yeah, if you guys go on Patreon, you can see John's new background there. It looks awesome. Um, yeah, th- things are coming along. But no- nothing beats in person. And that's one thing I was able to do with Brian Albert was an in-person. So we drove down to Annapolis for this fundraiser for Maryland Wildlife Crime Stoppers and used the time along the way. It was quite a drive. So uh, we recorded on the way back podcast. And, and Maryland's uh, very unique, very small, but has a ton of water close to D.C. So it has that influence and works with a lot of different federal agencies, especially because they're on the water so much. And Brian talks about that and the criminal investigation uh, division that he was in charge of for a while. And that's very unique because a lot of wildlife agencies don't have a criminal investigation unit because they had to investigate all the crimes on the waterways, anywhere on the water in Maryland, as well as owned property by the DNR. That is unique to them. I'm not sure. Do you know another state, John, that has a criminal investigation? Or, you know, certainly you can speak to these special teams. Yeah, that's really unique that Maryland does have that. And it was neat to see, you know, as we, as we went through this with, with Brian, how unique that is, especially for some of the smaller states. You know, I mean, it's hard enough to have enough patrol game wardens, you know, covering general districts. And as you know, we're kind of the jack of all trades. We pretty much find the violation, investigate the violation. And if it's not a site and release, and it's going to spiral into a longer investigation with multiple suspects or longer term violations, and more severe violations, we become our own investigators. And, you know, you've had these cases, Wayne, and I've had these where I go from a patrol function where I'm out almost every day on my lakes and my backcountry, And then I'm on a deer baiting case for six weekends straight. 
and completely out of the field until we, you know, target that one hardcore violator and really take that wildlife criminal uh, down effectively. And many states, you know, that's how it's done. I would mm. say majority of the states. I know Colorado had, if I, they may still have, an investigation division. You know that they're they're. Uh, patrol game wardens can get a more difficult involved case and step it up to the investigators and they'll kind of specialize in it. It's something in California. A lot of us in special operations kind of dreamed of if we were going to go back to patrol is we all had a background of extensive investigation experience of going further down the rabbit hole on environmental crimes, poaching, wildlife trafficking, whatever. And I know for California, very similar to what Maryland's done, even though they might have a general specific investigation crew, you know, we have a wildlife trafficking team. As you know, we have a marijuana enforcement team and we have what we call now the CEP. The name has changed recently to the Cannabis Enforcement Program that encapsulates like five or six teams now, as well as our special operations unit, the undercover team that really is a more in-depth investigation team. They're just doing the covert wildlife, you know, commercial wildlife violations and undercover by bus and things like that. So, but you just don't see that. And I, I know in New Hampshire, I don't think you guys had an investigations division. I mean, no. as a Lieutenant, I'm sure you were guiding or running the investigations your squad was involved in. Like I was in the patrol days. Mm-hmm. And quite frankly, that can be a big pain in the butt when you've got a hunting season coming up or a big angling influx of anglers coming in for an opener. So this was a really unique twist and a real positive for the state of Maryland of what, um, well, what Brian used to run. He wasn't only involved, but he actually used to run the team. And that's a f- real fun part of his conversation and story. Yeah. And then after that, he came into the, the wildlife crime stoppers, uh, joining, uh, Maryland kind of revived. Uh, we talk about Jerry Kirkwood in this, who was a major who's mm-hmm. now out in Colorado. And he kind of, he got this letter from international wildlife crime stoppers and no one had done anything for so long with this, that he kind of fired everybody up and said, Hey, this, this is the, the way we get information, you know, another Avenue to get information and we need to get this going. And, and I remember the first time Maryland showed up, three of their guys showed up, uh, Brian was with them and Jerry, you know, just, uh, took this whole hog and, and, and brought life back into what was a 1-800 number, now made it an active Operation Game Thief, which they named, you know, Wildlife Crime Stoppers Maryland, which I think it just spells it out very well. Hey, what, what, what's Super this all cool, about? Yeah. And that's how we became our connection. And, you know, it was, it's been an awesome friendship for sure. Uh, and it was an awesome time going down there to visiting Annapolis and uh, getting to do that fundraiser with them and then just uh, supporting International Wildlife Crime Stoppers and the Maryland Wildlife Crime Stoppers as well. So you just, you just can't beat that. And that's the basis of those investigations a lot of the time. So that's where we get a lot of our information is the public. And I can't stress that enough on this show how important it is. If you see something, say something. Even if you think it's wrong, it probably is, huh? Yeah, and definitely. And like you said, Wayne, um, you guys have it in New Hampshire, Crime Stoppers, you know, we're all part of that now and in our different parts of the state. But every conservation agency of every state has some version of mm-hmm. the turn in a poacher hotline. You know, in exactly. California, it's called Cal Tip. Mm-hmm. It's We Tip. It's, uh, you know, turn in a poacher, stop a poacher. And those numbers aren't hard to find. Most of the time, it's going to be right on your hunting or fishing license. It's going to be right online uh, when you go to the website for the particular agency and in the world of cell phones and coverage almost everywhere we go now if you see something and don't have that number just take a couple minutes or even a couple seconds to look it up online and make that call because it makes such a difference guys we are the we don't say we're the thin green line for nothing and if it was just up to us to find violations i guarantee we'd have about 90 percent more wildlife violations and wildlife loss if it wasn't for all of you guys as hunter and anglers and conservationists out there being our eyes and ears 
I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm speaking for both of us, Wayne, when I say some of the best cases throughout my career and, and my partners that are still out there doing it come from tips from people that really know what's going on in the outdoors, and those are Thin Green Line conservationists nationwide. And one thing I wanted to bring out in case we have younger listeners listening to this is, uh, you know, Brian does talk about a suicide, which, uh, you know, game wardens get involved with a lot of suicides because people right. have a tendency to go into the woods and go to, to places to, to do this thing, you know, and unfortunately. Um, so there is, a, you know, he describes a suicide. It's not in detail, but it, it was a very odd one, too. I won't get into it so you guys can listen to it, but I just want to give you a heads up that, you know, Brian through his criminal investigations, ended up investigating an odd shooting that ended up turning into a suicide. So it's definitely yeah. different, but, you know, I just wanted to put that out there. And, you know, certainly, uh, you know, I've dealt with this through our whole careers. It's, you know, I get I get frustrated with people that commit suicide and go and do it in the woods because they're not thinking of everybody else, but they're not thinking in their right mind anyway, so they really should be getting help anyway. So and that's that's the bottom line about trying to get help for those types of people that are even contemplating it. You get the people that contemplate it, you get the people that do it. But I just want to give everybody a heads up into that if you didn't want to listen to this episode because maybe you're a younger listener or something. But it's not very graphic. It's just we, we talk about it. And I think uh, you know getting help for people in those conditions is more important than anything. But it's part of our job as game wardens is we get involved with that with the search and rescue. Anytime it goes in the woods or the waterways, it becomes a case that we become involved with because generally we're the police in the woods. Yeah. And, and this story is so, you know, typical for that, that backcountry game warden that's going to run across something like that, that might get, it might not get discovered for months or even longer mm-hmm. um, if it wasn't for the outdoor wildlife law enforcement side. But it also brings us back to what we were discussing as far as our eyes and ears out there of, you know, wilderness aficionados that are part of that thin green line, you might run across, you know, heaven forbid, you might run across a suicide. I've had hunters and anglers um, stumble upon that and actually turn that in. And we were the first to respond with our allied agencies as well, not far behind us, but something you might see, it's not just a marijuana grow or a, you know, a baiting operation or a poached or, or, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, illegally killed wildlife species. It could be, you know, something a little more graphic that's going to get going to hit home. Um, so just something to be prepared for and understand that um, you as part of that thin green line might run across that. Hopefully never will, probably never will, but there's always that chance. Cause like you said, Wayne, that's where people go to escape when they're at kind of wits end. And it's a, it's a real tragedy to see it happen, but it does happen in our, in our operating environment of the outdoors. Certainly. So episode 51, Brian Albert, Maryland. So for this podcast, I'm with Brian Albert, formerly of Maryland DNR, and you retired as a captain, right, Brian? Yes, retired as a captain, 28 years of service. And you are currently the chairman of Maryland Wildlife Crime Stoppers, right? That is correct. I'm the executive director. Great. And we, we're just coming from Annapolis, where we have, well, we participated, Brian set it up, and I participated, I did a presentation to some stakeholders, and I always say stakeholders because that we all have vested interest in stopping all poaching, which I think, you know, is everybody's message. I mean, we, we talk about IWC, International Wildlife Crime Stoppers, and Lewis Rather's message, stop all poaching, and I think that's ours too, isn't it, Brian? Absolutely. It's, a, it's the only mission statement I've, I've been able to remember in my career, stop <laughs> all poaching. It's easy. Yeah, it's easy, it's to the point, and yeah. 
And I think that's what every Operation Game Thief, Wildlife Crime Stoppers, that's what we got to get out there. It's stop all poaching. And poaching can be a, a detriment to the resource, but it, it's just not about wildlife. It's, it is about the resource. Right. We, uh, you know, in Maryland, we have, we always were sold as miniature in America in the 50s and 60s because we have a forest in our western part of our state to the beaches on the eastern shore and the Chesapeake Bay. And uh, we have everything from ginseng harvest to uh, oysters, striped bass, commercial fisheries, and obviously, you know, the general deer and turkey hunting, waterfowl also. Right. And when I think of Maryland, I always think of the coast, the uh, the bay, stripers, crabs. Just uh, there's, there's a ton of water in Maryland, isn't there? Yes. Uh, Chesapeake Bay and the Potomac River, where it merges uh, together, the Potomac's over seven miles wide at that point. Wow. So it, it's a very, uh, you know, we have a lot of tributaries, uh, and then we, we have some freshwater uh, on the Potomac River above Washington, D.C., that, that we manage also. And then, you know, some impoundments of Deep Creek Lake is a recreation area far west that's used to mostly recreational fishing and boating. If you had to put like a percentage of on like a, the water, how much does that impact uh, the, the, the Maryland DNR police? I mean, how much time do you guys spend on the water policing that? I, I would probably say out of a, we have about approximately 250 officers. And uh, with the amount of boating in Ocean City and the recreational and commercial, we probably spend approximately around 40% of our time on the water or water-related activities. And I would say that's a lot, you know, compared nationwide, but maybe not a lot for coastal game wardens. Yeah, we're, we're tasked with, with uh, everything from uh, commercial fisheries, and that's regulations that include blue crabs, oysters, obviously, uh, rockfish, you know, even down to some small game fish that are harvested commercially for uh, for sale. So it, it's a pretty big industry in Maryland. Chesapeake Bay is one of the, the biggest uh, sanctuaries of its kind on the East Coast. Where, where did you start your career when you, when you got hired for Maryland? Uh, I was hired in uh, December of 1991, and uh, I uh, started... My first assignment was on Maryland's eastern shore on uh, the Chop Tank River Fishing Pier, which was a recreational fishing pier that was a state park and uh, very heavily used by uh, uh, recreational fishermen. At that time, we had a rockfish moratorium. And rockfish and striper are the same thing? Rockfish and striper are the same thing. Okay. Uh, just depends on what part of the state you're from, what you, what you call them. Okay. And, uh, you know, it was a pretty hefty uh, fine to... Uh, possess them out of season and uh you know they were just making a comeback and till this day they they have made a great comeback and, and why was there a moratorium when you'd say a comeback and uh you know we, we've attributed it to overfishing and over harvesting of, of the resource mm-hmm. uh you know the it, it's obviously uh some of the waterman's livelihood and, and it was big money to have to for those catches of commercial rock fishery and, uh, you know, over-harvesting and poaching took its toll over the years. And, and then also coupled with the pollutants in the Chesapeake Bay, you know, some other attributes. But we feel that over-harvesting was a, was a huge part of that. So it's quite a success story that today 
We have a large, healthy population of rockfish slash striped bass. That is correct. And, and that coupled with enforcement from, uh, you know, the law enforcement side and the biology side and, and regulations from our fisheries division on size limits and slot limits and seasons. Mm. Any uh, cases that stand out in your mind over rockfish when you were down there? Uh, you know, one, one in uh, particular, we I uh, caught a... Uh, group of people using cast nets uh and they they had 77 rockfish in all oh uh, they were they were uh at that time it was 500 dollars a fish for uh, <laughs> for the fine it was very very steep uh this is during the moratorium yes this was during wow. the moratorium uh that you know i think it was a little bit of education because they had no idea that they were taking illegal fish uh they were just taking whatever their cast net was getting Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons we, you know, we, we regulate the use of cast nests in Maryland. And, Sounds like uh, they're effective. Very effective. And, and they had fish from three inches long to, to 14 inches long, but it was, you know, it was just a prime example of over harvesting of the resource. Mm. Yeah. Fish you have a moratorium on and here's people with 77 of them from all shapes and sizes, lengths. Just, uh, yeah, that, that that could have an impact. You start doing that every day. Absolutely. And that's probably why it, what happened was everybody was taking everything, and that's why we ended up uh, with such a small striped bass population that I had to put a moratorium on. Correct. But what a success story today, because pretty much anywhere along the East Coast, you can go out and catch uh, rock bass. Yes. We, when, uh, when they're there. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, you know, we have, you know, we have a pretty, uh, pretty big population of fishermen that, that target striped bass or rockfish and uh and then also we have a pretty uh big population of commercial watermen that harvest them commercially for, for resale to hmm. the public wow that's uh pr- pretty impressive oh and, and from there where'd you go after uh, uh i was shore? i was on the eastern shore i was with the the uh, state, the Maryland State Park Service. Okay. And I was a law enforcement ranger, which we had full law enforcement powers, but we also uh, had other duties as assigned, which which all of us do. <laughs> yeah, I uh, love that bottom line. <laughs> yeah. So I left the Eastern Shore in uh, September of two of 1994, and I went back to my home county, Washington County, to Fort Frederick State Park, uh, which was about a 600 historic, uh, 600 acre historic state park with a French and Indian War era stone fort hmm. and a uh, lot of interpretation. There was some law enforcement there to be done, minimal, but during the hunting seasons, we, we would get some people uh, illegally doing that, uh, sneaking on for deer hunting. And I was at that point for nine years, and then I was promoted to the rank of sergeant as an assistant manager of Cuttingham Falls State Park which was a multi-use area. Uh, law enforcement was a little more prevalent there. Criminal activity, uh, marijuana was pretty big in the uh, early 2000s that, you know, we were, we were uh, trying to crack down on, on the marijuana and illegal drug use in the campgrounds. Uh, we had a pretty big day-use area that um, would fill on the weekends since we were so close to Washington, D.C., and Baltimore. And back then, the, the park law enforcement was divided from the forestry law enforcement to the wildlife law enforcement, right? That is correct. Uh, we had a division, Natural Resource Police, which was our game warden, so to speak. And and they did everything from uh, 
the boating enforcement, commercial fisheries, and the game and game uh, and inland enforcement. Then the park law enforcement. We did those type of things. We did not do much commercial, but we did the recreational hunting, fishing, and the criminal activity that was taking place in the park. All within the park jurisdiction, basically. That is correct. Hmm. And then that that, that kind of got all formed together. Yeah, in 2005, uh, January 1 of 2005, a merger took place. We uh, merged the two agencies together. Uh, the state did under a, a governor's initiative. Uh, I was the FOP president at the time. Pretty involved with the, with the merger itself. Uh, it, it could have probably been done a little bit better, but all in all, toward the... Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Now that we're 16 years past it, or uh, I guess 14 years past it, it is uh, working pretty well, and, and it's more efficient government that we're delivering for the citizens. Yeah, I think everybody could look back on anything and say that could have probably been done better. <laughs> Hindsight is twenty twenty. Absolutely. Right. So then everybody gets all sucked in, and uh, now you have a area patrol, just not specific to parks anymore. Correct. I, I went from assistant manager at Cunningham Falls to a, a corporal in that same county, which is Frederick County. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a county just west of Baltimore about 40 minutes has some rugged areas with Catoctin National Catoctin uh, National Park uh, Camp David's located there had some some pretty heavily hunted areas we have a Potomac River that was uh, heavily used so we had a variety of things to do in, in that I, w- I was only there for about nine months when I was promoted to sergeant I was moved to the westernmost county in our state which is Garrett County I, I was surprised by that move because I, I didn't put in for that. Like, but when I, so when what I got, did you do wrong, Brian? I, yeah, I got, I got a call from the captain, and he said, hey, mm-hmm. congratulations, you're uh, promoted to sergeant, and you're going to Northern Garrett County. And I was like, I paused for a moment because, because I was like, well, I didn't, I didn't want to say, well, I didn't really put in for that. Yeah. So, I, you know, I took my medicine, and, and uh, I went there, not unwilling, but uh, I was – not disappointed, but yeah, it, and it turned out to be a great thing. We we have a it's a very mountainous uh, rural area. Everything from snowmobiles to ice fishing to power boating in the summertime. Uh, and I and I made some great friends that are, are lifelong friends to this day that I that I worked with during that time. Sounds like a gay warden's paradise. It was it was absolutely it. It is a. Uh, Almost like the show Alaska State Troopers. That was us. We yeah. Were, we were doing snowmobile patrols on the roads in the wintertime, <clears throat> ATV patrols in the in the summertime, uh, fishing patrols, boating patrols. It was it was just a a good time in my career for four mm. years that I that I was there. And then you must have had some good cases come out of that those years. Yeah. Uh, Basically, I, I was a supervisor and a sergeant for that county, so we, I, I did have some cases, but usually I was uh, the glorious second man in, so I didn't have to write the reports. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to process the evidence. I just had the, the adrenaline rush of making the case. Yeah. So uh, we, uh, 
we would work together and usually, you know, the officers and the corporals that worked for me would, and, and with me would, would make those cases. Can you share one of those cases that stands out in your mind? Uh, yeah, one one that stands out, uh, we had a, it was a, a local corporal that's from Garrett County, lived there and worked there. We become friends and we're very good friends to this day. We uh, were working this spotlighting case. We kept getting complaints and tips that, hey, this was going on. And, you know, we just kept scratching our heads. We would, I'd go with him and we would set from midnight to four o'clock and we would, we, we were just putting in <clears throat> exhausting hours to try to make a case, mm-hmm. which every warden's done that. <laughs> yeah. It's February and Garrett County's pretty known rugged weather. So there's snow on the ground. You know, we're about to wrap up and it's like three thirty in the morning. I think I was sleeping and the, the corporal was, uh, on watch. And, you know, we get a guy in a Ram Charger, an old Dodge Ram Charger that had a lift kit on it and push bars. I don't know if it had heat or not, but it had a lift kit. <laughs> Did it have New Hampshire plates on it? Huge that sounds like tire, something. <laughs> tires. And uh, it was, you know, he's out, he's dredging through two feet of snow to kill a deer. Wow. And uh, what we find out later in, during the investigation the reason that the time frame he was a he was a farmer so he was doing he worked on a farm and he was a milker he he milked cows gotcha so his time frame was he's getting up at three in the morning going killing a deer and then he'd go milk the cows so that's why we were uh we were you know kind of so uh, long catching him but that that was one that sticks out in my mind yeah no doubt that was you a little surprised to see you out there absolutely you know we we had a time uh, keeping up with him in the patrol truck in that deep snow. <laughs> Luckily, he made tracks for us. Yeah. Tracked him right to the farm? Yes. Right into the milk room? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, we, we got him in the field uh, red-handed. So. Really? Oh, that's too funny. So, um, and, and most farmers appreciate when you do that because they don't want those guys driving through their fields, whether they're milking for them or not. Exactly. Oh, I just came from a friend's farm, and that was his big thing is where people were operating. You know, those farmers just don't like people driving through their fields. Right. They want them in a certain spot, in a certain way, and that even goes for the game warden. That's why it's so important to have that relationship with those farmers so they know that, A, that's you, and, and, and B, where you can go and not make him mad. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and that's key of, uh, you know, building their trust and that, that we're out for the resource and, and their resource even, you know, their mm-hmm. crops and their land and their their uh, livelihood right it certainly can enforce where people can go on their land and where they're not catch a guy in the farmer's field you know we can address that oh but so after that i mean uh you you moved up through the ranks when i left uh, garrett county in 2009 i came back to my home county uh, of washington county which is near hagerstown maryland and and i worked there for about a year year and a half and and then uh as you a know, sergeant there as, as well? As a sergeant there as well. And, and, you know, that was kind of nice being home. I, I had a lot of contacts already just because mm-hmm. everybody knew, knew me as, as working for, you know, Natural Resource Police. So they would call me with information, and that made the job a lot easier being in my hometown and right. my home county, usually passing on. I tried to build that mentor, the younger officers, to build the, to, to make those connections with the mm-hmm. local people. And uh, so then I, I went, and in about 2010, maybe mid-2010, I, 
I was on light duty from a shoulder surgery, and, and I took over the PIO duties, which is the public information officer, and uh, worked out of headquarters for a few uh, months uh, until I was back to health. But that, that created opened a lot of opportunities for me and created a lot of uh, uh, networking that I had with the press and, and different organizations throughout the state. Your networking career. Yes, and and that's key in in our in our business. It is. And uh, so, uh, after that stint, I, I took over our criminal uh, as supervisor of our criminal investigation division, which was a statewide division, ran centralized out of headquarters. We uh, investigated everything from uh, murders to sexual assaults on boats to credit card scams or thefts out of state parks. So. It was pretty interesting uh, work. Uh, mm. I, was, I was probably in it for, I was there for about three years. Had a lot of interesting cases that I, I didn't really work on directly, but I was supervisor of them. And so I was right. kind so of. So you were, you were involved, you just weren't the, the guy doing the actual boots Correct. In, so. and, you know, I was trying to give a, the investigators the tools to get their job done statewide. And, mm. and some of our investigations got lengthy and. And, uh, you know, it would take some, take some time to get them done. And, and uh, you know, we did the best we can with the resources we had. Yeah. Uh, can you share an interesting uh, investigation you did while you were there? Yeah, we spoke about it a little bit before uh, off record, but uh, we had an uh, investigation. We had a report of a kayaker that was on uh, Botkin Creek, which is a, a small tributary of the uh, Chesapeake Bay. And... Uh, you know, he was shot out on his kayak and kind of created a little bit of panic within the community of uh, Pasadena, Maryland was the closest town or the mailing address. And mm-hmm. It wasn't right on the heels of the D.C. sniper cases, but it was it was close enough to the area that it kind of raised some uh, concerns among residents. We had, you know, during a lengthy investigation, not to go into real detail, we... Uh, you know, through some very good police work, our our investigators uncovered that that the gentleman shot himself, fabricated the entire story. You well, know, he had said there was a red dot on him. You yes, saw me. Yes, he uh, he was telling the the medical personnel that that responded to him that there was a red dot on him right before he he felt the the shot. That led us to believe that he was shot from someone from shore. Right. And uh, it ended up, luckily, the Anne Arundel medical personnel that responded had a standard operating procedure to take gunshot shot, uh, gunpowder residue swabs off the hands of any gunshot victim. Well, that was key. That was key to our investigation. Uh, you know, we were investigating it for about 10 days. Yeah, as and when a, you do that, you get, you got to interview, like, everybody on shore or <coughs> anybody in the area and try to locate those types of people and <coughs> just the manpower that that type of thing takes because I'm sure you were calling everybody you could so you could try to get wrap this up really quickly. Yeah, we, we were trying, you know, we thought we had someone that was going to be shooting people off the shore. Right. Uh, we were investi- We were interviewing people at every house along that shoreline, mm-hmm. uh, asking for public's information with, with any kind of tips and following up on every one that we got. It was manpower intensive. It was labor intensive. It was, it was uh, you know, we put a lot of resources into it because right, cause of that. Your first reaction is you want to believe the guy that just got shot. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we worked with the state police 
and the Anne Arundel County uh, Police Department on the investigation. Uh, we ended up serving a search warrant on the gentleman's house. And a after we received the gunshot, uh, the gunpowder residue test come back. It's not like you see on TV that, you know, you, <laughs> you, uh, Put yeah, like, it in some super glue, and you see that. Yeah, like NCI, you, you, know, you know, you go down to the lab in the basement, and yeah. here it is. And, you know, five minutes later, there's gun residue on his hands. Right. We were right. Uh, we shipped it off to the nearest lab that could that could process it, which was Pittsburgh. It was very expensive, you know. It was $1,800, mm -hmm. I think I recall. Wow. And uh, it, it was getting someone through procurement to say, yeah, we're going to pay for that and do the investigation. Then we got a positive a positive result back, and then that's when the investigation probably started pointing toward this gentleman shot himself. <laughs> we uh, served a search warrant on his home and, and on his uh, his daughter's residence for uh, to try to find the gun that he shot himself with. He ended up shooting himself again uh, when we served that search warrant. Ended up su uh, succumbing to his uh, wounds from that second shooting. But you know, through investigation, we uncovered that that he had a uh, uh, extensive firearm ownership in high-end pistols, uh, Kimbers, Colt Pythons, revolvers, uh, <clears throat> 1911 type weapons that were, uh, you know, just collector grade. And, you, you know, we, we never did get a motive of why he did shoot himself. But, yeah. Uh, but he committed suicide. And, very bizarre case, huh? Very bizarre. You know, it leaves you scratching your head, but we never did get a motive, but at least we, we kind of had an end to it. We, we didn't have a shooter or a sniper on our hands. Right. That was picking people but off. But to shoot were... yourself in a kayak, just to have that idea. Right. It's just exactly crazy. Yeah, that's uh, that, that, that just sits in my head, and I'm just like, I, I, why, how, when? But I guess we'll never know. Jeez, that's, that's just the resources that takes... And the waste of time and the waste of money for somebody to commit suicide. It's just, uh, it, it, yeah, just, yeah, uh, my, you know, it makes me sick to think about that. Right, right. Mm -hmm. and when we, you, we've all had those cases. Yeah, but it's just, yeah, people don't think, especially when it comes to suicide. They're not in their right mind. I, I, I understand that. Right. But when they go out in the woods, they just generate so much extra work for the game wardens to go out and try to find these people. That don't want to be found. Correct. Um, yeah, we've we've all had those cases. Mm-hmm. No, just just frustrating, but I get it, and it's not going to stop because when people are in that state of mind, they're not in their right state of mind. Yeah, that, that's uh, definitely uh, interesting. And you headed up a lot of those types of cases, or did you do a lot of environmental con uh, cases, or no? Mostly, uh, the environmental cases were usually. Uh, Handled by the Department of Environment, uh, we, we would assist in those maybe with some investigation, but usually that you know we we did more of the criminal aspect of things mm -hmm. or you know and that's our, criminal on either landship the land that you guys own the water how did that define whether it was your jurisdiction uh, correct or not? any any lands owned or managed by the Department of Natural Resources mm -hmm. which was all our state parks we have wildlife management areas we have state forest in the in the uh, state of Maryland that are in excess of 50,000 acres. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, so we had a, quite a bit of land that, that the department manages, and we were the lead law enforcement on that. And then anything that happened on the navigable waterways of Maryland, we were the lead law enforcement agency, whether it was criminal, conservation-related, 
or, you know, any type of crime that took place on the waterways. Hmm. That's very interesting because that's, that's a, a big spin comparatively to a lot of other, you know, game warden, uh, game wardens across the country, really. Oh, that they have that, you have that criminal investigation unit within your Department of Environmental Police. Correct. Yes. Hmm. Well, that's great. So uh, how many years did you do that? Uh, I was in charge of the criminal investigation unit for about three years, maybe a little more than three years. Hmm. After that, I was promoted to lieutenant, which is a commander. Uh, I, I went to uh, our Gwenbrook office, which is in the central part of Maryland near Baltimore. I had Baltimore City Marine units, which is right in our inner harbor, which is a pretty, pretty big visitor's area to come to. Then I had a Carroll, Montgomery, Howard counties. And, uh, you know, so the, it was a variety of, it was a, it was a big area to cover. It was kind of new to me. Obviously I wasn't from that area, but, uh, you know, I tried to learn it to the best of my knowledge. Pretty interesting. We had some different things. Uh, every, if, you know, the, the riots in Baltimore were pretty well, uh, publicized nationwide our officers were uh we were detailed to those riots when the riots broke out during the freddie gray uh riots during uh i think it was april of 2014 Mm -hmm. and uh you know he died in custody of baltimore city police and and uh we had some riots downtown we our officers went there to move our boats and, and our vessels that are harbored right in baltimore city and, we, and some of our officers got stuck there for extended time. They were 30, 30 plus hours being on scene. Just to, it was a, all hands on deck for us with a, any law enforcement. If, if you were carrying a gun, you were helping out because uh, wow. it, it kind of the city was on edge for a while. Mm-hmm. And uh, then after we got it under control with the state police come in, uh, the governor <clears throat> come up with a, a state of emergency and kind of state police took over. and We started managing it. We had a contingent of 48 officers a shift every day, 12-hour shifts, and uh, they were coming from Ocean City and Garrett County. So we, hmm. uh, we manned that for uh, probably close to a week. So that wow. was an interesting, uh, an interesting uh, snapshot in my career that we, we had to deal with that. I'm sure that was an interesting snapshot of any game warden that was involved with its career. Yes. To, to look back on that and, you know get involved with that but you know it's funny i talked to some of the wardens of the 70s when uh, the nuclear protests were going on and game wardens got involved with that too because whether you law enforcement is law enforcement and they need help they need help and we're, we're pulling out the plugs and everybody's going to to lend a hand in those circumstances absolutely and, and we you know we had a a pretty key role in it because we uh, we we had the boats and and that was a pretty big uh, evacuation route. The we we had some plans that we could get to a local hospital if we had injured officers or uh, during the riots or whatever. It was a, a way that we could get out of the city without having being impeded by any any riots or groups or protesters. So uh, right, you know, we were pretty key in officer safety during that time. We also had officers on the street corners you know we were we were right out there on the front lines with everybody else Mm -hmm. so it it was pretty uh pretty interesting it was the main thought the the main thing that we got though you know the 
the the biggest thing. Now there was a couple times we were on edge. We had a uh, some uh, intel that there was there was some gang hit put out for any police that they they were riding around and they were just going to take crack shots at the officers. Mm. So that kind of put us on edge a little bit. So overnight one night that I was working, but for the most part, the citizens of Baltimore couldn't have been more cordial and they were like thanking us for being there and leaving food for us and it, it was uh it was just a great you know it was it was more positive than negative and the negative that you saw in the media was that's all that they sold but uh, it was a positive experience for the most part for me oh that's great that's great to hear that other side because like many others i watched that on tv and you never got that side and it sounds like again the, the few created the problems rather than the the, the masses correct as it is in a lot of things, we're looking for those uh, those very few that that want for the, all those people that are, <laughs> are poaching. We're only detecting one percent. That's just just crazy. But but from there, uh, Captain, uh, right? Yeah, from there, I was I was there till around uh, 2015, mm-hmm. and I was promoted to captain of the Western Region, which is the Western Four Counties: uh, Frederick, Washington, Allegheny, and Garrett. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of came back to my hometown, and I was in the drop at that time, so I, I knew I had an expiration date on myself mm-hmm. of uh, of November of 2019. You know, I, I got back home and really started drilling down into the community aspect of things and, and right. selling the, the officers and getting them out there. We, we started uh, participating in parades, and we started participating in community acts. Uh, functions and mm-hmm. we started getting more integrated with the local police and state police and right. getting back to our roots that uh, you know conservation law enforcement and, and really selling ourselves as as an asset and a resource for other other uh, agencies and officers and the community you know so that was satisfying to me to to make that happen and and hopefully it, it gets carried on by the my uh, predecessors that, that has taken over for uh, as as I've left the service. Yeah, well, that's uh, pretty interesting stuff. Uh, Jerry Kirkwood, where, where does he come into this? Uh, yeah. <coughs> well, I, I suppose we should let everybody know who Jerry is. Yeah, Jerry's a retired major from a uh, natural resource police. He he's a lifelong well, I said a career long friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and I, uh, he came on about a year before I did in yeah. the Maryland Park Service. And I, I met him in Texas. I think it was the first time I met him yeah. at an International Wildlife <coughs> Crime Stoppers. And, uh, yeah, I think he was a captain then at that time. You know, Jerry and I were firearms instructors together uh, throughout the, our Park Service career. Uh, we kind of paralleled each other. And mm-hmm. I was just a step behind him usually in rank just by... Just by uh, just by sheer destiny, I guess. Mm-hmm. And uh, we kind of, you know, went our separate ways for a, a while. And he was on Eastern Shore. I was in Western Maryland. But, you know, we always kept in touch. And we kind of moved forward. We got promoted in, in the park service together. And being a firearms instructor and a gun guys, we uh, kind of had that, you yep. know, bond that, mm-hmm. that you create. You know, lifelong friends. He retired in, uh, I think, 2017. And uh, he's living in Colorado now, and he does a lot of travel. Yeah, yeah, no, he seems very happy retired. But he kind of came on with uh, International Crime Stoppers in that uh, 
in that first conference and kind of started reworking the whole Crime Stoppers things for Maryland, didn't he? Yes, he uh, he was instrumental in getting this uh, program off the off the ground for us here in Maryland. I, I think he we got a letter that we I think Maryland received every year that kind of just got put in the on the back burner or somebody's mm-hmm. desk, and I think that was from the International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. I, I think maybe the first thing that he went to was a regional meeting that happened okay. in Maine. Okay, and then from that he. Uh, he just kind of took it upon himself. He was a go-getter. So mm-hmm. he's like, this sounds like something we need to look into. So he took it upon himself to get the colonel's uh, blessing and, and traveled to Fredericksburg, Virginia. Uh, got, or, I'm sorry, Fredericksburg, Texas. And uh, I you know, got this thing to the first conference that Maryland participated in. And, uh, you know, kind of got it kick-started. And then just, so, you know, he, he retired and and kind of handed the torch to myself and Major Lloyd Ingerson. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we... Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop. 24-7 with super fast shipping, MidwayUSA.com. We've been uh, not being full-time into the Maryland Wildlife Crime Stoppers. It was kind of something, of, a duty, extra duty that I took on, and and we've grown from there. It's taken us a while to get to this point, but I, but I think we're at a point that we got the ball, roll, the ball rolling, and I think it's going to start going down the hill that we're not going to be able to stop it. So I think it's going to be a force that, in uh, for Maryland for years to come. Yeah, and that's uh, you, you've created a, a nonprofit partner, haven't you? Yes, uh, created a nonprofit with uh, some board board of directors. Uh, we have a reserve officer program, which is basically volunteer officers in the, in the state of Maryland. And uh, Stan Samarazic, which is one of those uh, officers, reserve officers and volunteers, he's a uh, been instrumental in getting this off the ground and creating the 503 I think it's our 5013 C3, C3. Or, yep non- uh, you know nonprofit organization yep. to where we can partner and and we're a partner with the state but we are uh, kind of separate entity so we can kind of do our own things we're not we're not bound by some state government rules so mm-hmm. so it's a very good partnership to have to kind of fundraise to put out rewards for tips that we receive that, that, you know, result in convictions of, of our, the poachers that we want, we want to uh, curtail. Right. I think, I think you guys went down the same road I did when I got involved with international wildlife crime stoppers. I saw the success of other States and then I just, I took their template and started going with it. Basically exactly what we did. We, uh, you know, bounce some ideas off, off yourself and, uh, Lewis and, and uh, some other states, I, I talked to uh, Pennsylvania, pretty exclusively. They're a little different. They're, they're a state-run entity, but mm-hmm. still an international wildlife crime stoppers. But, uh, you know, we took the, the best ideas and tried to mold them what fit our organization best and, and how it would best serve Maryland. And hopefully we've come out with a, a pretty good product. Yeah, no, I think so. And today's uh, luncheon with those stakeholders to tell them about it and how to support 
Maryland Wildlife Prime Stoppers, I think, is uh, is significant and, uh, you know, groundbreaking. Yeah, I think it, it's just going to help us snowball and expand our uh, our stakeholders. Uh, you know, we, we had people from the Chesapeake Bay Savers, the Oyster Recovery Project, uh, the Waterman's Association, the sport shooters. Uh, we, we had a variety of people that have all have different missions, but we all had something in common, you know, is we want to stop all poaching. Right. So hopefully we can put aside our differences and uh, that we have on, with those stakeholders, expand our stakeholder uh, group. And, and move forward with fundraising and, and education and awareness of uh, of the poaching that's taking place in Maryland and other other parts of our country. Yeah, and, and today at the luncheon, you know, I was a speaker, but you had three officers telling these stakeholders of success stories based on Maryland Wildlife Crime Stoppers, which I thought was awesome, and, and two different degrees of uh, types of poaching, too, which I thought was really interesting, too. Yeah, we tried to pick a variety uh, of of cases that would kind of hit home with the, with the stakeholders and, and inform them about the process. And uh, you know, our, our call numbers have went up, uh, you know, immensely since we started the Crime Stopper uh, hotline. And uh, we we were had on our old catch a poacher. We had about eight calls in calendar year seventeen. And uh, we instituted the Maryland Wildlife Crime Stoppers hotline, text, and email in September of 18. And to date, we've had uh, in excess of uh, 250 tips that's been called into that line. So it's a success, and and I think it'll continue to grow as as we get the word out and continue to get more stakeholders involved in uh, in our organization. Right. And one of those that stood out to me today was a, a duck case where it was a closed season duck case, and these people are, were from out of state and shooting ducks. And when the, they they got the call, they arrived and they, they owned up to it because they had no idea duck season was closed in this area. And the the whole point of it was that we probably would have never been able to address that issue had had we not had that phone number. Or ever, uh, well, the way they reported it, it would have gone undetected. Correct. And something, you know, that, that's probably an unknown. You know, they may have went back to where they were from and, hey, this is a great place to be. We're going to go next year. Mm-hmm. So then they, they're bringing more violators with them. Right. Now, granting it's an unintentional and they're uneducated about the, about the seasons, but it's something that, you know, hopefully we educated those people and we put a stop to it before it got uh, got bigger than, you know, and it had a big impact on the resource. Right. And then there was another case I was told about, uh, an Oriole with a blowgun at some shop. <laughs> yeah, we had a call a call, and we made a case. It wasn't one of the officers presenting today, but we it was a, it was a wren. That was killed. Okay. That it was. In, I was going to make it a Baltimore Oreo just because we're in Maryland. Oh we yeah, know that. Well, we can do that. Yeah, we okay. Can, <laughs> you know, we can stretch the tooth. It's I don't remember like, what it was. Kind of <laughs> like a hunting, a hunting story. Yeah, exactly. Or, or a fishing a fish story. story. Yeah, yeah. yeah, that's exactly but, uh, right. We, uh, you know, it was a wren killed with a blowgun, and we we ended up uh, we got a tip on it. Our officer responded, and and uh, you know we educated that person with a citation. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you know it was a. A songbird. And, Even the little ones count. 
Yeah, absolutely. So it's something that may not have got called in. And, you know, someone that might have continued killing wrens in that area that, yeah. you know, would have had an impact on the resource. Yeah. And that, that let everybody put everybody else on notice in that area, too, that, hey, wrens are wildlife. <laughs> right. You know, and it's not just fun to shoot blowguns at. Oh, <laughs> I got a funny story about a blowgun. You know, I, I guess I got to tell funny stories. It's not really funny, but went to a Christmas party and it was one of those exchanges, those Yankee swaps. I don't know if you have Yankee swaps yes. in Maryland, but uh, there was a blowgun that came out and it was it happened to be at the chiefs of police house. And he was up changing the television as his wife grabbed the blowgun and he was bent over and she shot him right in the butt with one of those blowgun darts and that thing sunk right up up to its hilt and i'll tell you good thing it was his wife because everybody anybody else they would have died the look on his face i was like oh that hurt like the dickens (laughs) and thank goodness it was his wife because there would have been you know fists to fly and i'm sure but uh and that looked pretty dang painful too so that's my blowgun story. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if it's appropriate or not, but they are pretty uh, accurate and pretty <laughs> effective. I don't, want, I don't want to be on the receiving end of one of those. I, I don't think I would after seeing his reaction either. <laughs> and I'm sure she paid for it later, but the shock on everybody's face was like, oh. <laughs> but there was another case presented today, uh, the deer case that was across state lines that was really cool, too. <clears throat> yeah, our officer made it made a very good case on that it took a little leg work but you know he took that and he's a young officer too isn't he He is he's been on less than a year wow and uh it was a tip that come in to us on a an illegal deer kill by an out-of-state resident a resident of pennsylvania and uh you know that tip come in on our on our hotline and uh, he did the leg work and the, he went the extra mile to make to make that case uh you know the working with pennsylvania uh, game commission they did some interviews uh, found the evidence and and uh he made a pretty large case out of that he uh he had hunting without written permission uh hunting without a license yeah because when he investigated it he found out there was deer stands and bait on property they had no permission on that was actually posted correct and uh you know he did he went the extra mile to, to make the contact with the landowner that was uh, in California. Yeah, had no idea what was going on and, uh, on their land in Maryland. You know, he, he went the extra mile to make sure that he had a good case and a bulletproof case to go to court with. Mm. You know, got a good conviction out of it. Pennsylvania got some fines. He had some violations in Pennsylvania for going across state lines with a violation of a few different regulations from Pennsylvania and Maryland. So it, it was an excellent case that we wouldn't have made without without right. the Crime Stoppers in place. Yeah, and what a lot of people don't understand <coughs> is uh, there was federal violations too because it, it would have been a Lacey Act violation because he created, he violated in one jurisdiction and moved it to another jurisdiction the, from the state of Maryland to the state of Pennsylvania. So this this, this kid could have been in a, in a world of hurt had he been charged federally. Correct. You know, it was just good good, good police work on, on a young officer. Someone taught him that. Uh, so... You know, hopefully that's being handed down from, mm. from wardens over the years on, on how to make that case and how to properly, you know, do your homework and, and gather the evidence that you need to make a good case. Right. And the other thing we're seeing from state to state <laughs> is with uh, CWD, chronic wasting disease, and other wild game diseases, 
that a lot of states aren't allowing, you know, uh, the whole carcass to come along. It can only be the meat, not the bones or the brains or, you know, and that was another violation which more and more states are taking very seriously because we want to stop this disease from spreading across the United States. That's correct. Uh, You know, we get a few of those cases every year, Mm -hmm. uh, but I I think they're going to continue to grow as uh, more education gets out there about about CWD and, and how it's spread, if, if we, anything that we can, steps we can take to, uh, to decrease the spread of this disease is what, you know, we're going to do. Absolutely. And, and enforcement's the only way to, to take the action against that. And sometimes I don't think that the sportsman understands how serious it is and, oh, it's not a big deal. I'm just going to go take my deer and process it, you know, when I get home. Correct. And, uh, that's something that I think education is, and uh, sometimes it has to be through enforcement action mm-hmm. and, and a citation and, and fines. But I, I think the education part's where we, you know, we need right. to get If we can get to out. them before they violate and understand the seriousness of it. And, to, you know, we're basically trying to stop the spread of disease. Right. And this is the way that we're handling it. Mm. In retirement, you're still involved with Wildlife Crime Stoppers, the nonprofit side of Maryland, huh? Yeah, I... Uh, by default, I think uh, I found out today by reading the by reading the uh, program that I'm the executive director. <laughs> so uh, now I, I did know that before we kind of mentioned it, talked about it. Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, yeah, I'm willing to take the lead and, and and you know incubate this small organization and get it up and running and get it organized well, and then hopefully hand the torch off to someone else in a few years as as we move forward in in. Uh, you know, the organization's growth. Yeah, no, I think it's, it's extremely important. And I think nationwide, we are reviving the Operation Game Thieves, the turn in the poachers. We are energizing our sportsmen, our wildlife watchers, our outdoor enthusiasts to be part of the general mission that we all have to stop all poaching. Yes. And, uh, you know, that, that's something that, and, and it's not just a hunt, hunting or fishing. Uh, you know, it's for wildlife viewers, uh, bird watchers, nature lovers, just in, you know, outdoors. Yeah, that it's are, for that everybody. Outdoors, you know, uh, we want to preserve our, our natural resources, not just the wildlife or the fish or, mm-hmm. you know, the trees and the mountains and the, right. and the resource that we want to protect. Yeah, and in that is the management process, which hunting, fishing, and trapping is all a part of, is to keep healthy populations. Yes. So it's 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 a big, big puzzle that we're all pieces of, uh, especially law enforcement. And I I don't like to see law enforcement left out of that management equation. Yeah, and and that's something that we we need to make sure we sell as as time moves on, and uh, we need to get young people involved in the conservation law enforcement and uh you know groom the next generation of game wardens coming up and Mm. uh keep them involved in the in the community and and the outdoors and you know just be invested in in uh in the resource of management of of uh you know everything we we cherish no i totally agree and that's that's for sure and that's what Getting uh, the message out is all about and uh, sharing our stories of success and uh, Maryland stories of success. So uh, 
Really appreciate you joining me on this ride home from uh, your first luncheon to, to get those stakeholders involved and, uh, you know, start working on the mission to stop all posting and uh, continue that mission. It, it's been my pleasure, and I appreciate you attending our luncheon all the way from your 10-hour drive in New Hampshire. Yeah, and it's great just uh, being able to do a podcast on the ride home from it, so using our time wisely. Yes. Uh, so, well, thanks a lot, Brian. Thank you, Wayne. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from Game Wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Don't miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.